a £20,000 prize and makes the Edward Morgan Award one of the largest poetry awards in the UK. We're going to tell you all about it. Welcome to the Indie Poetry Podcast. Internet Poetry Reading. Oh, close. Internet Poetry Reading, I thought you were going to say. I thought I was going to say it as well. I don't know why I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> In 1999, Edward Morgan was made the first poet laureate. In 2004, he was named as the first Scottish national poet or macker. You may have seen Edward Morgan in the news this year as 2020 marks his centenary. Edward Morgan Foundation have used this entire year, the whole year, all of it, to celebrate his life, career and tremendous contribution to Scottish culture. Here at Speculative Books, we've already been celebrating Morgan's centenary by publishing the Centenary Collection, which is guest edited by Colin Hurd and contains poetry and short stories inspired by Edwin Morgan's scrapbooks, including a forward from Colin Hurd and contributions from Liz Lockhead, Henry Bell, Stephen Watt, Katie Veach, Sean Wei Kuhn, Jack McMillan, that's you. Struggled with that one. I did struggle with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Bissell, Russell Jones, Leila Josephine, Shezar Doza and Finola Scott and many Many, Many more. more. Edward Morgan willed close to £1 million to the SMP and left another million to set up the Edward Morgan Award. You must be a previously unpublished poet. However, pamphlets are allowed. You <sighs> must God. be no older than me, <laughs> 30 <laughs> years old, and this year's winner will be announced at an online event as part of the Edinburgh Book Festival, which is on the 15th of August. Know what today is? It's the 11th of oh, August. Oh, oh my god. god. Four days. Four days away. Oh my god. Man, That's so I, close. It's just flying. Time, Fly, is, time flying. is flying. It's I feel like it's barely walls. even been an hour. <laughs> <laughs> We've interviewed all seven poets shortlisted for this year's award, and they have sent us all a recording of them reading a selection of their work. Michael Grieve lives in Fife, where he works as a bookseller. He is a graduate of the University of St Andrews and Cambridge. His work has appeared in The Scores, Magma, Perverse. His pamphlet, Luck, has been published by Happenstance. Michael recorded some interview questions for us, which we are going to play before his poetry reading, and we're very much looking forward to having him on the podcast. If you would like to have the Centenary Collection for free, you can sign up to Speculative Books subscription service and use the code MORGAN, that's M-O-R-G-A-N, to get your first month free, and the Centenary Collection is your first book. We publish one book a month, which you can get through a range of plans. Just head to speculativebooks.net slash subscribe to find out more. Whew. Oh, it's really coming down to it now, Jack. I know. Oh, seven, Who's going to win? Uh, could be any of them. Could be any could of them. Be any, they're all very fantastic. How amazing to even be shortlisted. I know. Incredible. Incredible. Do you know That's that each incredible. person who gets shortlisted gets a thousand pounds? I did know that, yeah. That I crazy. think I told you that two or three days ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Maybe. right, so here we are. Without... For- did you hear that? A wee car. A wee car. A wee car. Boy <laughs> racers. What they like? Okay, right. <laughs> Next up, we have Michael Grieve. I suppose there are a couple of different versions of the story about when I got into poetry. I there is a version. I suppose I remember being about thirteen and falling off the Z's of fiction into the A's and B's of poetry in my local bookshop and coming away on a bit of a whim with a facsimile edition of Plath's aerial drafts, which are numbered and dated, and reading that and at some point later thinking, well, if, if you want to write stuff, this is how you do it, and writing a few 
very adolescent poems in that fashion. But when I think more properly about it, I remember turning poems from kids' anthologies over and over in my mouth from a very young age. And there are videos of me as a toddler going to bookshelf, going to the bookshelf, pulling off a picture book, sitting on the floor, acting out, reading it to myself, and doing it again and again and again until it's just me and a mote of books. So I suppose I suppose I never really started properly, which makes it difficult to explain why I do it, I suppose. I don't have a clue. Um, being shortlisted for the Edwin Morgan Award is its an amazing, strange thing. I feel like you, you send your work out to competitions and to magazines and to prizes and that sort of thing almost as a as a tie to the poetry gods to keep doing what it is you do um, without any expectation really of hearing back. So yeah, hearing back from it was is an astounding thing. There are poets who have been on this list before who I have a great, great amount of respect for and to be to be in the same box as them even if it is even if it is an admin error, which it sometimes feels like it must be, is it's an astounding thing. The collection that I submitted for the award is is really just a compilation of poems that arrived in one way or another over the past four or five years or so. They they aren't all born out of a single theme or anything like that. Some some arrived slowly over what must have been many months, I think, and others were were scribbled down on a napkin in Greg's and typed up when I got home and seemed to be gifts almost. I suppose if there's any anything that connects them all, it's just the question of how you how you live a life, how you live a life that's full for those that you share it with, but which squares those small decisions with the bigger things, with the questions of how how to navigate a world that seems to make being ethical almost, if not actually, impossible and. It's definitely a book with more questions than answers in it, I'll say that. <laughs> but there's not much that connects it all in a formal or explicit sense, I think. I don't know if I'm particularly well-placed to give advice to new writers. I, I haven't published terribly much. I think about five poems overall, some of which are too short to count, really. Um, and it's such a... It's such a individual thing, you know, there's no way to do it. It's about principles rather than prescriptions and it's down to everyone to decide what they're going to prioritise and how they're going to live a life that makes the most of what they have to bring to it, I suppose. Don't be crabby, and that's probably the best advice. Try and be open to things. Be angry and be frustrated, but don't be crabby. I think I had a couple of years being crabby and I don't know if it did me very well very much good at all, really. The future of poetry. <laughs> the future of anything feels like a, a big question at the moment. But I think the present of poetry is is moving in the right direction, anyway. The, there's a great diversity and plurality of aesthetics and topics and voices at the moment. And I, the more of that we have, the better, I think. I think the future of poetry that I want is one where 
editors and writers and that rare thing, the poetry reader can can make space to recognise the the manifest value in things they might not like, but which might, if they spend a bit more time with it, just just open the door into something they really hadn't thought of. And I think actually poetry as an art form is is very well suited to that. We have so many small presses and small magazines and low enough stakes that we can really let the that we can really let the gates be flung open. And if poems are finding their readers, then readers are finding their poems. Well, that's the thing. So yeah, I'll uh, read a few poems for you. I'll start with what is the title poem from the collection I submitted for the Edwin Morgan. It takes its name from the street that I live on in Cooper, only a couple of minutes walk away from the River Eden. The poem also refers to the noise that you can hear from from my flat, which I imagine you'll be able to hear in the background of this, so uh, sorry about that. Bonnie Gate. Here, in our first high-ceilinged flat, with a view over the main drag where gate has no sense of boundary but of way, and where street noises the first rush of the day and the fighting and singing of drunks become the murmur that we live against. Every home we live in in our lives will have started here, where, on the first warm day of the year, we jammed a knife into the painted sash to raise it up, only for its breezy crash an hour later to send this hairline crack across the corner of a pane. We lack the wherewithal to have it mended, and lifting the sash I am reminded of how our brittle clarities are prone to come apart, and of how this alone could undo anything. Our rattled frame, the house that frames it, the ancient name framing the house. I am reminded too of how time shows herself in residue, then patina, then dereliction the gradual dust and gradual action of mould in the break. I set in place our half-repair, a hinge with which we brace the sash, and listen as dusty air breathes freely through the room. A pair of passing children tiff. A scaffolder completes the job. When we are older, and have, I hope, moved on, continued loving, and when these noises fade to almost nothing. Listen, is the river Eden running? And the uh, the second poem that I'll read is just a wee retelling of what's quite a well-known story, really. Um, in the Firth of Forth, there's a wee island called Inchkeith, and one of our esteemed monarchs, one of the Jameses, who was a, a great linguist, wanted to see if humans raised without language would speak the word of God, would speak Hebrew. So he sent two infants over to the island with a with a mute a mute lady to see what would happen. Which is a 
an experiment that I imagine you wouldn't get to do nowadays. Inch keys. So when you can, think of them. Those bairns shipped over the fourth by their polyglot king. Raised by a mute, they'd have the heavenly language. A torrent of sound unspeakably joined in their wee angel's mouth. Aye, but think of them truly. Having spoken their whole lives only one tortured vow. Each one shaking and shaking their head like a tongueless bell. This, this poem, I think, says everything it has to say. It's called Apology. Apology. I worry I will fail to meet the needs of those I care for and who care for me. That lack of skill or else complacency will see me lost. If someone fails and pleads their innocence or ignorance, who knows if they have meant it or if their fearful shame has taken over? How can we claim that we are truly sorry? Suppose we silence our apologies and delve no deeper than the pain felt by another which one way or another we have caused. Suppose we reckon deeply with the cost of what we do and of learning whether a life may be sufficient to itself. I'm gonna next the next one I'm gonna do is a wee poem in Scots. I don't write in Scots very often at all and it tends to be a last resort if I just can't get something to come through in English. Um, so this is one of the oldest ones, one of the oldest poems I think in the collection I submit. It's just about a wee a wee creature that I stumbled upon on a walk one day called a lacewing. Lacewing. The first I saw you, fleeing like you wanted to be yet. A fairy wicked grambling in the licht. I scooped you through the grooty air. A critter so weird, but we're in wee burn. You were at quite so long I thought you'd ever bide. And when you went, it was with sick a glint and flit. A guy near cried you, luck. So, uh, a few of the poems are twins, and some were born that way, and some found each other in the process of putting it all together. So I'll read a little sort of twin pair for you. The first one is a, is a nod to Keats, but it's more than that, an expression of just how much I enjoyed Emily Wilson's recent translation of The Odyssey. On first looking into Emily Wilson's Homer. If I have ever heard this told before, I swear my ears must have been plugged with wax, or else I was distracted by a roar of wind that carried off the tune. 
The backs of all those weighty books are broken, their pages foxed and scattered to the seas, where the loose weft of their rhythm slackens, and I lose the thread of their grand odysseys. But here, at last, the story's homing in with its lines taut enough to fire an arrow and woven close enough to catch a wind and cut across the foam. I am no hero, but I hear the song and taste salt on my lip. Tie me to the spine of this great ship. And its twin is a poem about Jockey Wilson, the, the darts player, who I learned just around the time that he died had lived round the corner from where I grew up. So this poem has quite a few Kirkcaldy references in it, not least Geordie Monroe, uh, the wee song about the man who wanted to leave but for various reasons couldn't. Oh no, 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 Geordie Monroe, Oh no, 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 my wee laddie, I don't want to go to Idaho, I'd rather stay here in Kirkcaldy. Jockey Wilson The shadow of your silicotic lung hung over me, and I was unaware. A kid playing minutes round the corner from where you never played again. The thing that gets me, Jockey, isn't how you rose from Seafield Pit, half pissed with three arrows in your hand to fly from Edinburgh's terminal and win the world. But how Christ knows we know what brought you back. How natural the pool of Chinatown, Kirkcaldy. Although you never saw nobody, as Malvina said, who after all was all you ever needed, it's where you stay, our Geordie Monroe and our Odyssey. So I'll just do a couple more. Um, the next one has a wee epigraph from Chaucer's Parliament of Fowls. And it's from the end, where the whole poem they've been trying to make this decision. And the decision is that they will ask respite to have my choice all free. And it's called Parliament. The jackdaws of Muirhead Bridge are in general assembly. Split down the middle in a last-ditch attempt at unity, they are eventually joined by the jolting noise of the railway, and their croaking mass is sent simultaneously in every upward direction. The edgelings seem to hold their sway, pitching in left-right correction to corral the body, but each bird's swithering notion contributes to their murmured way, and by such indecision, it seems they're already estranged from their two-sided bridge. How on earth will they manage? And I'll end with a wee poem that, that I didn't submit, um, but which is slightly more recent. 
over the past few months I've been doing as much rereading as reading. And this poem was sort of born out of a little passage from I think the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Um, but just glossed at the start of the poem. Sufficient unto the day. So worry less about tomorrow than today. There's evil enough to trouble us for now. After all, for all the deepest evils, money, death, there is an end, a limit of extraction and a world left homogeneous and long. But love, love aims at nothing, endlessly making deep the day with minutes, glances, kindnesses exchanged for naught. Sufficient evil, yes, but love, how little is enough. Thank you very much for listening. All best to you.